Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we're doing the November wrap-up, and we've got my two favorite psychologists with us today, Richard Beck. Hello. Good to be here. And my dad. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, guys, do you want to hear about a great organization to go to? If you have a person that you know and care about has, that has spiritual burnout. You know, I've been wondering about that. Yeah. yeah. What well, would you do? Well, I would send them to 1128 Ministries, a great organization that we heard about last week with our friend Risa Higgins, who's the executive director. It's a place to go if you're looking for spiritual renewal, sabbatical retreats, or any sort of guidance. They provide spiritual uh, advisory, and they are just outstanding people. So if you are looking for an organization to help with a minister or a spiritual leader to maintain their spiritual depth, I would encourage you to go to 1128 Ministries, check them out, hear about them, and uh, they will not only help you, they'll help your churches by investing in them. And if you still didn't get a chance to help them with their fundraiser on the 28th of this month, I think you still should do that anyway. So 1128 Ministries, go check them out, and uh, that's our sponsor. Doesn't that sound great, guys? It does, actually. I mean, that, that's really cool to find out about because, I mean, I just think that's a huge issue for preachers it seems like a very lonely job sometimes yeah because you're kind of out there by yourself yeah a bit. yeah and and it's hard to be transparent with your congregation so anyway good to know that people are out there doing that work yeah yeah that's well, uh, that would be a great uh, thing for brent in one of his that. comments he was talking about doubt so this would be a great thing to send pastors ministers dad that was just a great transition you're like a professional <laughs> <clears throat> I'm, that was really good, Dad. Thank you. Did you write that down? <laughs> Not yet. Spur the moment right there. <laughs> well, okay, let's just jump right into it. Our guest for the month, we had uh, Brent Sullivan, the comedian who my dad just me mentioned. We had uh, Sarah Bessie, our favorite Canadian blogger in the world and author, Sarah Bessie. That's and right. Then we had uh, the bishop himself, N.T. Wright, was back on. Who apparently had a delivery in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> did you say he had a wardrobe? He a did, wardrobe yeah. delivered. He had a wardrobe. And you made a, you made a great Narnia joke. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's the funniest thing. I got a message from someone, a listener of the show, who actually has N.T. Wright's old wardrobe from like when he was in college or something. And somehow it's been passed down and there's a student, uh, a guy who was a student and, and he's since graduated, that has N.T. Wright's old wardrobe. That's going to be one of the more obscure bits of furniture <laughs> yeah they're like hey this is not but you can't let that go right. if exactly. you had it you would want to hold on to it yeah yeah but i feel like uh the good bishop really could have done more with my c.s lewis reference i, f I felt like that was pretty i thought it, yes i did I well he did him a softball there and he, he, he just he wanted to get back into paul's interpreters i know and, um, mm -hmm. but he didn't miss a beat he knew exactly what you were implying <laughs> yeah yeah he did if, he did yeah he it, I assume he hasn't gotten back to you. He hadn't found a portal yet? No, no portal yet. We could ask him about it uh, at Pepperdine in May, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are the ones we're going to talk about. Uh, we also did a mailbag, but that was me talking to myself, so I don't know if we have to talk about that one. We well, you did a really good job with that. Oh, you answered some it, really good questions. Stop it, Dad. Why are you pulling on my shirt to say, keep going? <laughs> keep going. Tell us more. That's a no, good I thought you thought. answered those very well. Well, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's almost like you're my father. <laughs> so you have to say that. Okay, let's jump right in. Brent Sullivan. He... Uh, he he wanted to talk about preachers who doubt. Like, that's where he wanted... He clearly mm -hmm. was interested in that. Why, why do you think he wanted to go right there? Well, Richard? I mean, I, it was a really interesting conversation because I think... I think in the mailbag, somebody mentioned that. That was one of the... I don't know how many conversations you had, but he was an, he was an unbeliever. So for those who haven't heard it, he, he yeah. was um, an agnostic or an atheist or whatever. But I thought really respectful. I thought that was the really nice thing about the conversation is that you all had a really nice back and forth. And he seemed um, um, very, very kind of literate and, 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 and uh, interested in, in that experience. Um, I don't know. I think he, he probably was interested in that because – he has doubts and would would expect that really smart people like I think he respected you intellectually and would would raise questions and I I think uh, he just wanted to know how 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 smart people who had had questions and faced the issues that he faced how they reconciled that and so um, I think it just sounded like he was legitimately curious about that. Yeah. If I would have been in that conversation, I th I think I would I would have liked for him to differentiate. Uh, the the doubts that he's referring to because on the one hand you could think of the big doubts about the existence of god is he active in your life and then when he started 
making comments about trying to get you to do a rating scale, which I thought you did a really good job of going, well, I don't know if that's the best way for me <laughs> to talk about that anyway. But I, but I also think then he was talking about more like trials, that when things happen that you weren't yeah. prepared to deal with. So I, I would have liked to, him to expand on both of those. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if he was just trying to see, okay, are all pastors just like fake? Is that, is that what's behind the question? Like are, are pastors fake? Um, but I don't think he had a, a frame of reference that allowed there to be more than two categories of you have 100% faith or 100% doubt. I think that was kind of a, a, a non-option in his frame of reference that there can't be the duality of you have faith and doubt at the same time. Yeah, and I think you tried to point out that you rejected the word doubt, and, and I think you, you said that I, I think it's people just trying to come up with a more complex faith that dealt with the yeah. complexities of reality. Um, and, and, I, and I talked to my students a whole lot about that because I, I think you come out of you know your, your, your home in high school and you have a kind of a Sunday school vision of faith, and then something, you're hit with something. Maybe it's trauma, maybe it's loss, maybe it's your first exposure to kind of the hard moral problems with with things like the Old Testament, or you learn a little bit about um, the manuscripts that, that make up the Bible, and 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 something's going to happen at that point. I think you're going to lose faith because you can't incorporate that complexity, or your faith would become more complex at no. that at that point. Um, but I do think you know to connect a little bit with Sarah Bessie's um, podcast, you do have to tolerate more ambiguity and uncertainty um, when, you, when you're dealing with, with the increasing complexity of faith. You're just going to have to tolerate more questions and, 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 and be able to move on. And some people can't do that, it seems. Um, they have to have a fair degree of certainty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, it's uh, just the longer I have lived, the more I have been able to recognize that I tie a number of tangible things into my faith. And I'm not throwing out being rational, but I'm amazed at uh, just uh, a variety of things like good health or a job or uh, children, a number of things that we hold to be important. We tie that into our faith and as life goes along, we start to recognize we don't have any ownership on any of those things, that faith is beyond what we can truly see. It's really what we're hoping for. And we don't even have a real clear picture of what that hope looks like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the last week, I've spent time uh, with two different uh, people, two different families that both lost children oh. and you know, as a, as a parent, I mean, you think that's probably like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And you know, trying to to imagine a scenario in which y you go through something like that and maintain faith, it's kind of overwhelming. I like I really get why people say you know that that destroys faith more than anything else. And I, I I've heard someone connect. You know, that's what happened with Darwin. Like when his daughter, I think it was a daughter that got really sick. Maybe she passed away. Like that's mm -hmm. what caused him to walk away from faith, not not a scientific research. So yeah, I, I think it's pulling all that in. I think I'm not sure if I did this or not. In my head, I referenced William James in that conversation. Do you think I did, Richard? Because I know that's your guy. No, I don't think you. I don't think you did. Okay, well, I don't recall. In my head, but, I did. But you're thinking of like William James is the sick soul. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in William James is the rise of religious experience. He talks about sick souls, and they're sick. Not and they're sick in the sense that they try to reconcile faith with the darker aspects of existence and the pain in that. And that attempt to reconcile faith with those things creates a kind of a, um, uh, a melancholy is a word he uses for it. But but there is a darker strain that runs through faith. And so he called that the sick soul. And the reason why is because at that time he was contrasting it with a movement going around in American religion at the time that kind of emphasized positive thinking, which yeah. he called the healthy minded. And, and, and according to that strain of uh, spirituality, any sort of dark or morbid aspect was was uh considered to be pathological but but james lands on with the sick soul saying that actually he thinks the sick souls have a more realistic and a deeper and a more resilient faith because they're not going to get kind of knocked off their feet mm -hmm. by tragedy yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's, it seems to me that a congregation has to be mature enough to allow a preacher a pastor to have integrity about their own doubts 
that, uh, and I like the way you said uh, to Brent that, that, yeah, you don't really know of anybody who is just blatantly hypocritical, but you do know some people that have an integrity about their doubts. That still doesn't tell us how much they're able to be open, say, from the pulpit or even in relationships. And I, and I think, again, that depends on the strength, the maturity of the congregation. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always found that the preacher who's able to reveal his or her like rough edges and not just like this slick, glossy surface uh, is someone that I can connect to a whole lot more. In the same way that like mm -hmm. if a wall is just smooth, I mean, there's nothing for you to grasp onto. But if there's some cracks and there's some uh, you know divots or whatever, you can hold on to that. In the same way, I feel like you know good preaching like allows you to see a little bit of the contours of someone's struggle so that you can go, oh yeah. yeah. I can connect your person just like me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So w one of the th other things we we try to talk about was preaching on that on that conversation. Uh, obviously, he's a stand up guy, uh, and that's part of the interest that I As have. As a stand up comedian, stand up comedian. <laughs> he's just a straight up stand up guy. He's a stand up guy, yeah, yeah. and he's also and integrity. A stand up yeah, yeah. Uh, comedian. He is a man. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But so. you have some doubts. <laughs> I have some doubts about that. No, he was not like that at all. But uh, so he had this bit he did in his act uh, that I had heard a few months before, a few weeks before, and I thought, oh, you're making a prophetic stance against you know whatever, and he's like. No, I just thought it'd be funny. And I was like, oh, my bad. But I do think like the tension of like being a comedian, like a lot of times those are the truth tellers in our society. Right, yeah. And they, uh -huh. they have a place for that. Oh, no, I agree. I think there's, I mean, um, speaking truth to power, you know, from a psychological perspective, there's a lot, there's lots of interesting research on the relationship between humor and power um, and how humor has often been used historically to um, being directed at people at power. So there's the court jester, right? Yeah. So the court jester would be the one that could buffoon the king and get away with it. And that, that was uh, perceived as a healthy thing for the king and in the country. I've actually, actually heard uh, somebody was telling me about this, that certain Indian tribes, um, they have different clans in the Indian tribes. I forget, this might be the Crow Nation. I'm not sure, but... but um, but anyway, one of the clans, that was their job. Their job was to kind of make fun of the other clans to, as, a, as a way to kind of level them and mm. prophetically kind of keep mm. them from getting their heads too big. Mm. And so I do think there's that. Uh, and I think late-night comedians, stand-up comedians have always kind of performed that, um, speaking truth to power. Um, which is, And it's also why, like, the class clown is so subversive to the authority of a teacher because yeah. they are, you know, they are – um, so humor is often uh, implicated in power. So mm -hmm. it, it can have a prophetic aspect. That kind of explains what Stormont always does to me. He's just always trying to attack <laughs> me. Maybe that's he's what trying he's trying to undermine. Yeah, he's trying to undermine yeah. your power. Maybe that's what yeah. that is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But that's all right. You can do that. It's called downward humor too. That like when you, when you look at humor usage around a, like a boardroom table, usually the uh, um, the uh, CEO or the boss can make jokes and everybody laughs, and so there's a it's often used as a power display. The person who can make everybody laugh is the uh, most powerful one. Mm, interesting, but like if it's you, also interesting because you know you use a lot of sarcasm and humor in your own podcast. So yes, that's, uh, yeah. Wait a minute, I don't know what you're trying to say. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're just saying. Pay well, attention. and and I I think it's the, in regard to the, to the humor. Uh, it also depends on who is the target of the oh, humor. Oh yeah, right. And you and I actually were on a thesis together that uh, you were the chair and I was a thesis uh, committee member for one of our students who did one on humor. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, part of it has to do with if you put yourself down or if you put somebody else down. But either way, you can still speak truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Good old Sigmund Freud uh, said there's always some truth behind a joke. Mm -hmm. A joke yeah, yeah. is not just a joke. Thanks a lot, Sigmund. <laughs> so, like in the book of Judges, there's stories about you know Israel's like the little nation at the time, and you know there's a story about Ehud, who's you know a, a powerful person in one of their rival communities, their neighbors, and it's a story that they're like making fun of, uh, you know Ehud's this possibly handicapped, um, you know soldier who does you know brave heroic things, and the story's kind of like Israel's making fun of like the big bad nation next door who's always bullying them. And so you kind of see that, like the little guy making fun of the big guy, and that's kind of the power mm -hmm. dynamic that you see in that. And that's what Stormer does, I guess. <laughs>
<laughs> At least the little part. Yeah. The, oh, oh that, I'm sorry, that, Jonathan. You oh, weren't man. here. Half court and the scoring. Where these have ganged up on Jonathan's. I like that. Thank you. you. You pick on me, Jonathan. My dad got got my back. <laughs> Jonathan, <laughs> I like you, and I miss you. I'm I'm sorry you're not here today. Yeah. We we le- you know people think that high chair is just for my daughter, but we actually <laughs> oh. left that there for Stormy because we thought he was going to be here for this, but he had to leave. So anyway, uh, any more about Brent? You guys want to talk about? Yeah, uh, actually, Richard, you mentioned some things uh, in a, in an email about preachers and ego and pride, and Brent definitely talked about that. He was asking you about competition, and let me start off by m- making a, a plug for Randy Harris, that I really appreciate Randy uh, and him reaching out to young preachers. I assume part of that is helping to give feedback so that preachers can have a more realistic picture of where their pride is playing into into uh, their preaching. Yeah. I'm really thankful, Luke, that you are part of a group where you get together. Um, Richard, uh, Richard and I were up in the Northeast for a long time, and a number of congregations, including from our faith tradition, were relatively weak in terms of uh, numbers. Uh, And there were a lot of preachers that were very isolated, and consequently they could either burn out or some of them got overly egotistical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're out on an island. And that's why I'm grateful to be in that group with Randy as he and I mentor those other preachers, and I think we do a lot of good work with them. You and Randy mentor them? (laughs) I heard that. (laughs) Well, I thought it was an interesting interesting moment because he asked you if you yourself— um, felt competitive with your with oh, your yeah. with your friends, and you said no, I don't really, because you know um, I wish good for them, they wish good for me. And then he said though, but think about somebody outside your sphere of influence down the street. They're 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 that church is growing, and I just think there's just so many different metrics that preachers can compare themselves to, and I'm sure there's other metrics in other fields, but like there is you know there is the size of the congregation, and there is book deals, and there are web hits you know on 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 social media their twitter followers i mean there's all of these metrics out there um that i think i think you could become obsessed with um as, as a as a pastor or a preacher or somebody wanted to and 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 in many ways it's it can get real tangled up with wanting to do good because you would like to 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 influence people to to get a message out to there is an evangelistic aspect to it and so um i, I think you could get your motives really mixed up. It, yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily think there'd be preachers out there who'd just be like straight out competitive. But it, it seems like to me, you can just have these confluence of motivations that can cause a person to get confused about why actually am I doing this. Plus, you're also the person on a stage, and I think that has its own kind of unique temptations. I mean, it's not unlike, you know, there's professors that, that, that get on stages, but yeah. but but, uh, but there is something performative, and I think that's what Brent was trying to get at. There is something performative about preaching that can cater to celebrity status, their speaking gigs, all these other kinds of things um, that I think, you know, preachers would probably have to offend against. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so you have uh, a blog that's super popular, but the ironic thing is, if anyone knows you, they know you're almost antagonistic towards your own success. It's like you, you, yeah, you, I, you don't... Yeah, I'm a self-defeating person. Yeah, you, you have... <laughs> Your email is Juno still, and you're, you have no Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, none of that stuff. You just write things out there. And I would imagine for you, like at some point, it would be very easy for you to get caught up in checking how many hits you're getting and how many people are looking at your stuff. Ha- right. Have you created like practices or habits to help you be disciplined away from that? Well, I mean, I think the, the things you're describing are the practices and habits. I've, I've tried to early on not – to um, focus on that, um, growing it, you know, yeah. so growing a Richard Beck platform or a brand or, or to buy into my voice. You know, people would say that, you know, like, Here, this is my voice. And, and, and I just want to kind of, I've always wanted to keep that blog just kind of like a journal. Like, this is what I'm thinking. It's a place I put my thoughts and I gather them. And that's all it is. It's not um, trying to to be of influence, but see, I can do that because my, you know my day job is to be a professor. I don't need to. I don't need that blog to do anything influential, and that's where I think there might be a difference between me as a blogger and a preacher. Because I think a preacher is 
vocationally an influencer mm. trying to you know you would blog to influence to spread the message to right there's a great commission kind of out there to kind of get it out there um but but so yeah for me um but yeah i'm still tempted i'm still tempted to kind of go well i have an opinion about that and i think more people should read what i think to say so i mean I, so it's a daily thing it's not saying I've, I've overcome it it's just you know it's a we talked about before we started um this podcast about just trying to be real disciplined about not obsessing about your statistics and checking them in an obsessive way and just let that go. No. Um, but it's hard to do. No. Okay. Let's talk about another blogger. <clears throat> We're not just going to talk about experimental theology.blogspot.com. <laughs> <laughs> that just, that just rolls right good, off the tongue. Does it? Does it? Good plug. Every time okay. you say it. Um, let's talk about, uh, Sarah Bessie. Sarah Bessie. Yeah. She's got, uh, she's got a new book out. It was called, uh, out of sorts. Out of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Good book. I read it. I liked it. She's a great writer too. Yeah. Yeah. She's just a really good poetic, lyrical, writer but she's also just really wicked smart too. yes and, for, and so, for a canadian <laughs> no for anyone. Sarah, i just want to say i didn't i'm not buying with that so <laughs> uh yeah that 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 combination of she's very very soulful as a writer but also just very smart and and she kind of downplays the theology you know i'm not theologically educated and that was kind of one of the themes about about um kind of doing theology outside the academy um, but she's really theologically literate and has some great insights. So, yeah, so she's a great blogger, great writer. Yeah, definitely. Dad, what did you think about the second naivete stuff? Did you did you like that? I did. The, I did. Use of it? Yeah, and uh, it, it actually made me think of a number of things. Of course, you, you mentioned uh, uh, about orientation, disorientation, reorientation, mm -hmm. those kind of uh, ideas. Uh, back many decades ago, Piaget, in terms of cognitive stages of development, influenced me about thinking about Christians and the way that they approach God and their spiritual maturity. And, you know, I, I began to conceptualize that possibly we only have a certain limit as to how much we can comprehend. And the second naivete kind of rang through that kind of conceptualization, and it's like, oh, okay, so... We do think we've got it wrapped up, and then something happens, and all of a sudden it doesn't quite make sense, yeah. and we come at it again, and we recreate an understanding. So to me, it, it seems like uh, it's an ongoing process throughout our life, and I think the more we can equip people to be aware that that's a natural stage of development, I think it'll help us to be less surprised. Yeah. The other side of that is if we recognize other people are going through that, and the reason I tied Piaget in there loosely is they may they may approach this very differently than we do, but having a certain level of respect and appreciation for God working through them, no matter how we we imagine ourselves in comparison to them. Yeah, there has to be the humility that you know, there's a journey that we've gone on, and. Someone might be ahead of us, someone might be behind us, but we're all still like journeying together. And it, anytime you have a spiritual insight that causes you to be pompous and arrogant, it's probably not a good one. Right. And, yeah. and I'm not even sure you can tell if somebody's ahead of you or behind you. I've got a list of people. Yeah, yeah. I do. Everyone's on the but podcast. But then I want to ask your criterion. Yeah. It's, and so that would be the part that would be suspect. My criteria is whatever makes me feel good about myself, <laughs> which I feel like that's most people's criteria for how they judge other people. So we go back to Brent and pride and preachers and... Well, luckily, I'm just a podcaster right now. Oh, okay. So right. it's, a, it's a Wednesday. What? So the second naivete stuff, have you worked on that? Have you read any of that well, stuff? Well, no. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it, but I do think... Um, li you know, listening to Sarah's story, and I think it's a common one right now. I, I think a lot of people who are um, defining as you know post-evangelicals or post-fundamentalists or emergent, or they're ki they're kind of uh, moving out of a place where there was a lot of certainty, you know, a lot of dogmatism, and they're, and they're and so they're doing a lot of deconstruction to to, to come out of that. Mm -hmm. And 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 during that, it's really hard not to during a time of deconstruction be very critical of where you came from. Um, and, and level a lot of accusations, particularly if there's a lot of emotional woundedness that, that goes back to that. Um, but, but then there's got to be a, a period of kind of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think you're seeing more and more authors 
um, as we as we follow them on their blogs. I, I think Rachel Held Evans is a good example of this. Her searching for Sunday book is another example of that. Somebody kind of moving through a period of deconstruction and then trying to begin those processes of reconstruction. So what what can be salvaged? So what from the church? or the Bible, yeah. um, going back to those things and finding positive moves. And I think that's been my trajectory. I think when I was blogging in the, in the early years was very deconstructive. Um, but in, in recent years, I've been trying to be more, uh, recon- I was more deconstructing. I'm trying to do more reconstructing now. So again, I think I would say I'm in a second naivete, kind of revisiting some things and looking for the positives, what can be salvaged yeah. from that period so what do you think causes that switch to make someone okay we don't need to deconstruct and say this is what's wrong with church and this is what's wrong with the bible and this is what's wrong with our tradition instead say no no no, let's construct something beautiful out of this what do you think is the the thing that that clicks or makes that that change happen i don't know you know i think psychology might i was i was visiting with steve sandage who's a big um psych religion researcher up there at boston university and, and he does a lot of work on relational spirituality and attachment theory and, and the reason i bring up steve right now is because um uh, I, I was writing about something about kind of getting to this, how I had, I had come out of a conservative background when you, when, you know, you and your dad share and, and they said, but some reason I got on the other side of that, never felt bitter about that. Never, never was very reactive or angry about it, even though I would define that experience as fairly conservative, even fundamentalist. And then somebody on my blog, I forget who did it said, you probably had good parents. And, and I said, I do, I did have good parents and for whatever reason, because of that emotional, we would say an attachment theory, kind of a secure base, you know, uh, a secure attachment style Hmm. that I filtered everything in church through the lens of kind of a primary affection that I had from my parents. Um, and that buffered me, um, and, and it's interesting because if you look at somebody like Nadia Bowles Weber, she also went through a very dark period, rejected a lot of things, but she has a really great relationship with her parents. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you'll wonder if those kind of primary affectional bonds um, tether people to some primal memories of church where they experience love or affection that they can't shake. And, and if people lack that, and if it's all just kind of traumatic they they don't have any sort of relational connections then um i think they kind of drift off so is it that like the parents attach them to church at a young age and so those are like good memories or is it because they have a positive experience of like maybe say authority and they have a respect for like you know something older or bigger than them and that's how they're filtering it through or is it just the fact that they went to church with their parents and that was a good thing no, I, I think it's I think it's more effective. I think it's more emotional. So I, I, so it's not so much that they went to church. I don't even think the church part is a huge part of it. It's that, that they filtered their church experiences through the affections of their parents, and that becomes kind of the the, 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 the kind of foundational relational filter that they perceive spirituality. And that again, I think provides a, a groundwork that they can return to those hmm. affectional aspects undergird faith that after they deconstruct kind of a Sunday school faith, or even they deconstruct some kind of toxic things that they even internalized that mm-hmm. still, when they go back, there is some affection. I don't think that's all there is to it, but I think that would be a piece of it. Interesting. Well, isn't that consistent with the research that you did in late nineties, early 2000 oh, yeah. mm-hmm. about attachment to God and uh, attachment to parents, that there is a correlation between those two. Right. And we also, I also did a study on attachment to God um, and, and theological exploration. And, and so one of the things we assessed was if people had a, a, a secure attachment to God, they didn't fear God was going to reject them. They didn't fear God was going to damn them. And they, and they also felt that God was available to them emotionally, that they were the, one, the ones most likely to ask theological questions. They, they were the ones most likely to go exploring theologically. Um, because the idea there is that they feel like their attachment figure, God in this case, wouldn't, you know, zap them if, if they asked the hard question. Um, and the idea, but the people had more of an insecure attachment to God, right? More fearful of God judging, more wrath, God being unavailable or cold. were much more conservative theologically, less hmm. likely to ask questions. And so, and so that can connect back with what Larry's saying. But if those primary attachment schemas relating to God are rooted in attachments with parents, um, then yeah, it's, uh, 
a healthy love of parents can create a healthy attachment to God, um, which can create give the courage for somebody to ask questions, develop, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. Oh, yeah, I, I wonder about uh, the millennials. Uh, I, I'm assuming much of your audience is coming from that generation, uh, your age, and uh, our, our current college students. They probably did not have the same experience of that judgmental side, uh, for example, that maybe their parents or their grandparents. Now, I'm identifying with their grandparents. And for me to question God when I was in my 20s, I literally had to put on the table, if I go down this road, I may have to recognize I have lost my salvation. To me, all the cards are on the table, all the chips are in. And it was such a, a anxiety-provoking situation that you had to get to that point where, okay, but I've got to go this direction um, in, in order to have any kind of integrity. It's, it seems to me we are much more comfortable now being able to say, uh, well, there's certain aspects or the way that I was taught about God I have questions about, and it's okay for me to spend some time looking at that. That doesn't necessarily mean um, devastation or judgment. Yeah, because it's a different understanding. Okay, so so if we go back to, to the theory we were talking about a second ago about with the parenting and attachment, what do you do about someone who has a maybe not a ideal or a healthy relationship with their parent. And obviously that's influencing their understanding of God and connection to church. Is there a way to work against that? Is there a way that you could, um, I don't know what, what, as a pastor, I'm thinking, okay, well you can't just say, well, okay, if you had a You're, crappy family <laughs> life, well, uh, we'll it. never see you again. Goodbye. I mean, yeah. what, what, what can churches do to help mitigate that? Um, I, I wrote about this on my blog. There was a guy out at the prison, uh, a guy named Steve, and uh, I was talking about the love of God when, you know, you know, blathering on like about the love of God like you do in classes. You know, God loves <laughs> like you. you and, like you and, do. Uh, uh, and Steve raised his hand. He said, um, he goes, I've, how can I believe that? I've never heard another human being ever say they love me. My, my, my father's never said he loved me. My mother, I, I, like literally he, to that point, he's like in his forties and he uh, never heard mm-hmm. another human being look at him and say, you know, I love you. And so obviously you can draw a line there between that experience and the reason why he's in a maximum security prison and his life's kind of off the rails there. Um, and, uh, and it makes me think about that passage in Ephesians, that prayer, he goes, you know, I pray that you have the power to comprehend how deep and how wide, you know, is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's an interesting phrase, right? I pray they give the power to comprehend something. And like to your point, right, there are parishioners and members of churches that do not have the power to comprehend that love because they lack any sort of human experience that gives them an even a realm of understanding to, to that, that they could be loved that way. They've never experienced it. So it's incomprehensible. And, and again, I would say it's not even – it's not intellectually incomprehensible. It is, a, is, a, is a effectively and emotionally incomprehensible. They can't feel it in their gut. And I think you got to do what I started doing with Steve is I, I, I make sure now every time I see him in, in the Bible studies, stand in front of him and say, Steve, I love you. And, and that's a little thing, but I think that's what we do in the body of Christ is we, we stand in front of each other as kind of sacraments of God's hmm. presence to say, I know you can't believe this about God, but I love you. And, then, and so I talk to my students about what we do for each other is we make the love of God uh, more credible when we love each other, more believable as we stand in front of each other and say, I love you, or I forgive you. Um, and not, Nadia, in her book, um, when she was out of Pepperdine, talked about that, about how that God gives us the church the power to forgive sins and how we, we can't forgive ourselves because, yeah, we feel forgiven, but it's this abstract spiritual thing. God out there forgives me. But unless somebody stands in front of me as a sacrament of forgiveness and says, your sins are forgiven you. And the Catholics and the Orthodox, they have mechanisms for that. But Protestants, it's, we don't have anything like that. We, and, and, and I think we need people in our lives when we've done horrible things to stand in front of us and say, you can lay mm-hmm. that burden down. And so, I, I, so all that to say is, yes, I do think we can function sacramentally and therapeutically for each other. Um, but it's a long journey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
there's a, there's an old saying that if you want to be a good athlete, the most important thing for you to do is to pick your parents well. Because obviously you don't pick your parents. It's right, kind yeah, of a joke. Right. But like that's important. Like if, if you want to be a good athlete, you have really tall parents who are good at jumping and running, and no one has any choice over that. Yeah. That's just the cards you were dealt. And for some of us, you know, you're born. You're not on third base when you're born. You're born in the dugout, and you're not going to get on the field anytime soon unless something happens and it's a beautiful picture of what church can be is that we're the the instruments mm -hmm. of god that give you that sort of opportunity um which is a nice kind of segue into one of the things that you know bessie talked about with how do you stay in a church that's kind of different from you is there time to go is there time to, to stay and that was actually one of the mailbag questions is someone asked a question of like how do you how do you stay at a church that is going against the direction that you're going in your life and god's you know working in you and i think that's a that's a very real question that someone has to ask. And actually, uh, you know, it's funny that as someone this week asked me, you know, I know what Richard Beck kind of believes because I, I, I read his blog, but I don't, I don't know how he's in his church because they don't all think the same way he thinks. Hmm. It's hard to go to my church. I mean, Jonathan Storman's my preacher. That's difficult to stomach each week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even have to say that one. Thank you. Yeah. You're going to have really good preaching the Sunday after Christmas at your church. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Are you a guest speaker? Yeah, really, really high-quality, newsworthy speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about that Sunday. But, like, both of you, like, have been a part of churches that had different, um, maybe, theological leanings than you had. And I know both of you have stayed in churches that maybe didn't fit fit your framework. And so, I'll start with you, Dad. Like, when when do you think, okay, it's okay to stay even if they disagree? Well, I think part of it has to do with are you do you see yourself as someone who's trying to nurture that group? And as a result, if that if the answer to that is yes, then I think uh, you are there and you are uh, in a position to be able to be more tolerant, to be more loving, to be more accepting. And consequently, you are the one primarily giving. Mm -hmm. uh, I think at some point. You may get to a situation where you're saying, okay, I don't know that I'm being effective any longer and I'm being underfed. I need to be nurtured. And at that point, I think that's when you would consider going yeah. somewhere else. Preachers hate when when a leaving member of the church says, you know, I just wasn't getting fed here. Like that, we, we absolutely can't stand it and you will get so many rants if you just text that to your preacher buddies and oh my goodness that's too terrible but to be fair like i kind of get it like it makes sense yeah. what are you gonna say richard you know i think like to the question like yeah so highland i would be considered on the far progressive side of my church um and highland's unique uh in that like we have some very very conservative members um and we also have some very very liberal members and i i don't know um, how common that is, but I find the diversity really important. Um, cause I really think we should be people of reconciliation and peace. And that means you're going to have to hang out to do that. You're going to yeah. have to hang out with people that are different from you. And that means not just doesn't mean socioeconomically different, racially different, but it means politically and even theologically different. Yeah. Um, and I, I think if the kingdom is going to be a witness to, to, peace and reconciliation there's got there's got to be those walls of hostility broken down now, the other thing i'd say this is that for some reason and i i don't know but it's but i think some progressive and liberal people just are just very intolerant of of certain ideas um like like i i have big theological problems with like penal substitutionary atonement and um the idea that God would torture somebody in hell for all eternity. So I'm like widely known as a critic of those views. Um, but when somebody articulates them in a, in a lyric of a song or a prayer or like, I don't freak out about that. Like, like I don't, why not? I don't because um, I think one of the perennial temptations of Christianity is to reduce it all to language like it's we're, we're, we we fight over words and God talk, um, and if you're not using God talk properly, I'm going to get upset with you. And so, you know, I don't like that lyric. I don't like I don't like that phrase because of the theology that stands behind it. And so, sometimes I think what happens with progressive and liberal people is they just can kind of create another orthodoxy. 
um, and you have to adhere to their orthodoxy. And one of the heresies of the new progressive orthodoxy is penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. Like, like that's heresy. That, that to to articulate that is is you got to be excommunicated if you believe that kind of thing, or um, belief in eternal conscious torment. Like that is heresy for the for this new orthodoxy. And and to me, I just don't want to get into monitoring orthodoxies. I, I want to say, okay, I have problems with that. We can sit down and have a conversation about it. I can tell you where, if I connect the dots, that could lead to some kind of bad outcomes. I really don't like the view of God behind it. But at the end of the day, I've always defined my liberal progressive sensibilities in orthopraxy, which is right practice. And so there's a lot of people I go to church with that I might really disagree with their theology. They might, you know, violate these, they might be a progressive heretic. Mm-hmm. But they're the people that go out with me to the prison, or they're the people that help me serve the poor and homeless. And some of my liberal friends who are orthodox progressively, you know, would reject all the same fundamentalist doctrines I would reject. Um, they're really good on social media, but they're not so good when it comes to, like, literally going with me to uncomfortable places in our community. And so to me, at the end of the day, sometimes I have more in common – when it comes to like following Jesus with very, very conservative and even Republican members of my church than I do with the most liberal and progressive. Um, and so, okay. When I was asked that question, I gave that exact same answer. Oh, did you? I, th- I figured that's what you would say. Yeah. But I, I, but I didn't get the, the perennial temptation of reducing it down into language. Like th- that's fascinating. That's very brilliant because you know, John one word became flesh. We like to like turn that around and take flesh and put it back into word. And so we and then debate about the words. And debate about the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really good. Okay. Can we debate about some words and talk about NT right? Talking about new perspective on Paul now. Is there a good transition to that? I don't know. You guys were deep in the academic weeds on that podcast. Okay. I gave you some questions and you didn't ask them. I, okay. Well, first of all, that was your new publisher, Fortress Press, definitely on the <laughs> academic route. Your new book is through them, but it's not the... It's the theology of the people, yeah. Yeah, so that's not what this one... This was not theology for the people. This was pretty technical, and the the dichotomy of that interview is that this is very technical stuff. We're talking about new perspective. We're talking about uh, you know apocalyptic reading, and the whole time I'm doing that interview in my new house, which has no home office. So I'm in my daughter's playroom on a little (laughs) pink chair on their little white desk. And I always have a piece of paper like I do right now and a pen to write down like ideas as I'm talking to someone and I don't have a pen. So I'm taking notes while talking to Tom Wright about new perspective on Paul using a purple crayon. (laughs) I like that image. Yeah. That's what was happening. Perfect. That's perfect. That's that. You should have saved that piece of paper. You know, I I should have, I don't know where it is right now. Um, but I mean, I, but you, I mean, so much academic that you felt the need to, at the beginning of your podcast, give a little primer. Did you think I needed to do that? I really do think you needed, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was a great podcast. Thanks. I love it too. but, 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 uh, one of the things I think we probably would want to do is like what, and the question I was, I was, I texted you was, you know, why should the new, why should the church care about the new perspective? Like what's it, what is at stake in it for the average person that goes to church about whether or not the Lutheran reading of Paul versus the new perspective reading or the apocalypse, like what does it matter to the church? Who cares? Yeah. Should, and why should we care? Okay. Well, part of the reason that question didn't get answered is because uh, Dr. Wright was talking about a very academic book and he didn't want to mislead anyone who listened to the podcast to think this was more popular level. So that was part of the reason. He was very successful. Okay, so let's talk about that. So uh, new perspective. Dad, you, as a psychologist, I'm sure you've done a lot of work. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Second Temple Judaism. And, okay, uh... so the, like the, <laughs> the elevator pitch of it, it's, you know, his, his theory is in the 16th century, you know, Luther had a very real issue of legalism in the church. And they read that issue about the church being legalistic into Paul's understanding of Judaism. And so that's been the filter for the last hundreds of years that we've used to understand Paul, which is a very helpful reading for Luther, you know, 500 years ago, but it's not really what Paul was worried about in the first century when he was writing. So um, with that being said, like, how does that impact church? Uh, 
as I've been thinking about it, I was trying to think, well, maybe this is connection to maybe substitutionary atonement. Maybe people get this idea that, you know, Paul is moving people past a legalistic Old Testament, and this is a better way to get past the wrath of God. I don't know. Uh, maybe well, it's part- interesting because you asked him, you said, hey, your critics say that you throw away the atonement. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, no, 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 I write about the atonement as much as anybody. And so it leads you to believe like, oh, okay, well, then there's nothing at stake in the debate then. Everybody agrees on the atonement. So that, that's to me that, that – uh, that's the part I'd like to explore a little bit about that. Like is – you do write about the cross. You, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, you do write about the atonement. But is it, is it changed in a, in, in, in a way, in enough of a way that the person – normal person sitting in the pew would, would care about that distinction? You know? Or is there no debate there? Because well, I, I think he's so quick to defend that he's not throwing out the cross or the atonement that, that we're not – we're not seeing the relative distinctions and how the atonement might be changed a little bit. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like for you to elaborate your views about the atonement. Bef- but before we get there, uh, going back to Luke, your explanation of the, of the new perspective. So as a, as a lay person in theology, so part of what, what I'm picking up is that w- what we're talking about in the 1500s uh, that Luther, they're strongly putting all their weight on faith, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, and and if, if I'm understanding what uh, Dr. Wright is saying and others that he's oh. referred to is that they're not throwing out works at all, that, but it's a matter of faith is what puts you in a covenant relationship, what maintain or what keeps you in that covenant are your works now let me jump to to james now i'm in a lot more comfortable maybe it's shallow waters but it just seems to me we're talking about are we entering into this covenant or are we staying in the covenant and james i think would tell it tells me anyway that he's writing to a group of christians and and of course it's all about faith but Mm -hmm. faith without works is dead yeah okay and so i to to me the new perspective is basically saying he's not putting um saunders and and it seemed like there was another one that he mentioned in the 50s that uh wrote about this as well uh but but they're basically saying that okay we're not throwing out faith but works is part of the manifestation of that faith faith so yeah, the, I would agree with that. I was I was uh, this is kind of a weird thing. I was talking to one of the guys out at the prison because the pri- what's interesting is the prison study is like a one room classroom. I got people that are, you know, grade school education didn't graduate mm-hmm. from my and then I have guys out there that are brilliant, but they don't have a like, lot of education. But their IQs are through the roof, and so they're really craving higher level theological conversation. And so I was talking to one of these guys about you know the new perspective, and he, I was trying to explain to him. What, you know what the difference Hold was. on, you're talking new perspective, prison <laughs> ministry, like, and this is the best thing to talk about right here. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So we were in the hall, you know, yeah. So we're just chatting up about the new perspective, you know, mm-hmm. with an inmate out there about, you know, like you do. Yeah, I don't think and I so, would talk about it in a Bible class at my <laughs> church, but, you know, whatever. If you, but, but it was a challenge, too. I was trying to I was trying to articulate why should you care. And, and it, I think it dovetails really nicely. My summary was what Larry was saying is, is I think— Instead of works of the law being a caricature of Judaism, like legalism. So mm-hmm. the idea was that the Jewish religion was a legalistic right. religion, um, and that was then pitted against faith. I said, so the first thing that the new perspective does is it, is it um, doesn't set up Judaism as a straw man to knock down yeah. and then put Christianity perennially at odds with Judaism. But the new perspective flows out of and is very intimately connected with Judaism. So that deals just with a lot of the kind of implicit— anti-Semitic temptations yeah. implicit. So I think that's a that's a gain right there to connect Christianity more deeply with the Jewish story. I said the other thing that I think it helps with is understanding this weird disjoint in Paul's letters because Paul's if you read Paul's letters from the I guess old perspective, the Lutheran perspective, he he, he spends the first part of the thing saying you know we're saved by faith, mm-hmm. you know, and not by works, you know, and then. He shifts in the latter half of his letters with this. So therefore, do all of these things. And so the ethical codes at the end of his letters never really connect well with the front end. And so you have these 
debates between justification and sanctification. How do they go together or whatever? And I think that um, the new perspective does a better job at, uh, yeah. at, at answering that because it says the issue of works wasn't moral, the moral code. It was circumcision. And so the issue is how do the Gentiles get access to the covenant of Abraham? And the debate at the time in the first century church was, and you see this in the book of Acts, was either circumcision or Paul's gospel, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Hmm. And Paul says, you don't need to become circumcised to be Torah-observant Jews. You can just have faith in Jesus. And that's how the Gentiles get grafted in. But, per what Larry said, that's how they get access to the covenant. But now that you're in the covenant, there are covenantal obligations and expectations. And so there's a more seamless connection between the front and the back end of the letter, which is, okay, Gentiles, now you're in. So therefore, don't grieve the spirit, right? You know, of course you wouldn't behave in these old ways because now you're covenant partners. And um, and so I think the faith and works debate is better resolved by the new perspective. I think that's, again, this I'd say another reason why it's a better. And what if you divide the works into at least two categories and you say that when Paul was um, saying the works or de-emphasizing works, those are boundary markers, uh, circumcision, dietary laws, the Sabbath, those kind of things. But loving your neighbor and caring for others and taking care of them is part of being within that covenant. No, I like that because I, I think some people have made distinctions between the ceremonial and the moral um, law, you know, Torah. Um, but I think your your frame right there, Larry, is, is better. It's less about ceremonial moral. It's more about boundary marking, right? Which is the law, the wall of hostility, mm-hmm. versus the moral. I think that's a better way of looking at that distinction. And obviously, Paul gets his. Uh, he he talks about the new perspective in Ephesians two, where he's talking about that you're saved by grace through faith. To do good works yeah. or yeah. for right. work for good works. I like that the preacher is being quiet and letting two psychologists <laughs> preach do to the you. <laughs> do the biblical discussion. <laughs> but you guys got it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's good. And and I think new perspective is it's helpful. It resolves some of these issues. It makes sense of some of the Psalms, especially in, in the Old Testament, where there's like effusive praise of the law. It's very difficult to read the psalmist talking about how how much I love abiding in the law and how it's a light to my feet and how wonderful it is. And then go hear Paul say, no, the law is the worst thing in the world. Well, well it, it, new perspective, I think, kind of helps mitigate some of that. But I think that's, that can also help resolve some of the the disjoint because you heard him talk about how he had difficulty or there's this difficulty resolving the apocalyptic perspective with – the new perspective, mm-hmm. you know, what he's doing. Cause he, um, and I think there, there, that's a connection there. I think the, the law in Paul is one of those powers and it's particularly toxic when we're slaves to sin. And, and, and so the law becomes uh, enslaving to us, not because the law is bad because you can't reconcile that with like Psalm 119, right? All these yeah, oaths yeah. to the law, the law is toxic because of our um, fallen weakness and so I think Paul's – the apocalyptic idea that Paul talks about how God gives us the spirit and frees us from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil, that allows us then, because we're empowered, to um, live to – to pick up the law yeah, yeah. Um, and, live more, and live moral lives. So I think it's Paul's pneumological account of the Holy Spirit that can kind of maybe join the new perspective with um, the apocalyptic yeah. Okay. Anything else on Tom? Because I got one more thing I want to talk about. No. You good on that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So the podcast, if anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while knows that I've kind of stole my format from Bill Simmons, who's a formerly ESPN, now he's HBO sports guy. Yeah. And so he has his dad on the podcast, and that's where I got the idea to have you on the podcast. Uh-huh. So thanks, Bill Simmons. <clears throat> and he's got a guy who's a regular guest on there named Chuck Klosterman, who I think is my equivalent to Richard Beck. So you guys, that's a high compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Do you wow. know Chuck Klosterman? Yeah, I do. I do. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's he's really good at really interesting yeah. connections and cultural commentary. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Okay. So, so recently, I'm inherited status and Richard is achieved <laughs> status. Is that what you're telling me? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's not get <laughs> caught up in that. I mean, I had to bring you on the podcast. That's you're my dad. It's like, oh, well, I guess I have to do this. Uh, no, that's not true at all. You know, I had someone at uh, the the new church I'm a part of say how much they enjoy you being on the podcast, and I said that is so nice of you. And I said, how many have you listened to? And they said, no, none. But it's just nice to see his name <laughs> on that. No, that's not true at all. Okay, so Klosterman was on Bill's podcast not too long ago, and he said that he's interviewed four people in the year 20. 15. Two were athletes and then two were musicians. One was Taylor Swift, who, mm-hmm. if anyone's listening to the podcast, knows, love me some T Swift. Taylor Swift is very loved in my household. All the girls and myself, we like Taylor. And the other one, I think, was some old old rocker. And I think it was like Jamie Lee Roth or something like that. And I don't exactly remember who it was. Van Halen, right? That's Jamie Lee Roth. Yeah. 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 yeah I, th- I think that's right. I think that's right. But the classroom made the point about the difference of opinion that they, that the, the generations have like Ross opinion about doing interviews and interacting with the media is different than Taylor Swift's. And Ross is, I don't want to do anything in an interview or any sort of secondary interaction with my fans that would alter the way people mm. hear my music. Mm. Whereas Taylor Swift says who I am, the interviews I do, my social media, all the other ways that I interact with people, it's part of the music. And Klosterman's point is it's a generational thing. So an older generation doesn't want to connect the personality with it. The younger says the personality is part of the music. And so I wanted to try to tie that maybe to a generational attitude towards preaching of older generations and younger generations. Because it seems that younger generation, or maybe this is just the people I listen to, seem to put a lot of their personality into their preaching, their Mm -hmm. story, in the same way that our girl T. Swift does that with her interviews and all the secondary things along with her music. Whereas some people in older generation, not all, but some in some ways distance their own personality from the preaching. Do you think that's a fair take or am I just making that Mm -hmm. up? I think so. I, I've read this somewhere that uh, that the this, the younger I don't know if it's the millennials, but but authenticity is like the coin of the realm now. Yes, and and so it seems like that that the the, the personhood and the personality of the preacher kind of has to almost align with their message for it to be con- perceived as credible. And so I think there is an increased demand in our generation for, for, for that connection. So there's probably a, a felt demand from the okay. culture yeah, that, that you sense. have to be kind of walking the walk where I don't know. I don't know if in the past um, that, that there might not have been that demand for authenticity mm-hmm. and, and because may, maybe it was more of a private public private divide at that time. But I don't, I think the private world has in, in, in it's kind so, of blurred. It's, it's almost gone now. Yeah. Like, I mean, well, from my you know. generational perspective, when when I think of preaching, not that I remember a lot of the 50s, but I was there the whole decade, and we were still in that deba- debate mode, and it wasn't about your personal qualities or characteristics, your personality. It's all about facts. Let's try to beat the person down by using good, rational arguments. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time we got into the later 60s, I think we had a society that was starting to push against uh, authority and and kind of the way things had been. And I think that brought out a certain level of authenticity. And I think gradually, uh, probably in the 70s or so, I started observing preachers were becoming much more conversational. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. much more personal and i i'm i'm with richard here i think that, that 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 sells almost more than if you will the product yeah uh, i think there's some research that says and i think this is hume who talks about that uh we're not following logical rationale for how we make our decisions it's emotional and so we make emotional decisions and we look for logic to support that and i think that's uh jonathan hate stuff with mm-hmm, righteous mm-hmm. mind or something like that but that supports that it's okay before it's we think we're going to logically beat you down and you're going to eventually submit to the reasoning i have but i think people now realize we're emotional creatures and to have a conversation mm-hmm. with you and to see someone's authentic humanity that's i think more compelling than okay let me give you this great you know you know, 20 minute expose on this idea that all has to start with an acronym of the same letter or something. But well, let me, let me just go way off on a tangent here and, and mention the second naivety one more time. It is amazing to me how 
you could have a number of paradigms that seem to, to, to really help to ground your faith when you are younger in your life. And all of a sudden, whether it's generational, whether it's what we're talking about right now, uh, just that the emotional relationship is held at a higher importance, all of a sudden everything changes. And that and to me, the application of all of that is that faith is something that has to be ongoing. It's not a decision that we make at one point and we say, okay, I'm going to put my faith, I'm going to put my confidence in this, and I don't have to rethink it. Every day, you and I are having to say, okay, God, do I really believe in you? God, am I really going to make you the focus of my life? Am I really trying to bring glory to your name? And if I don't, if I start sleepwalking, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. That's good. That's a good final word. Um, Richard, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it was great being with you guys. Yeah. Always. Dad, thank you. You know, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm in Abilene right now to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. Richard, you're going to be going to Dallas tomorrow. Yep, we're going to be at Dallas and family. In, in, in the honor of Thanksgiving, I'm going to say thank you for you, Richard. Many people might know this if they've listened to the podcast religiously. Uh, your book, The Authenticity <laughs> of Faith was the book that inspired the podcast. I remember reading it going, I want to talk to Richard. And that was the beginning wow. of the podcast. So, and thanks for being a good friend of the podcast over uh, all these shows. So thank you. Thank you. And dad, thank you. Appreciate it. There was a, um, a comedian named Aziz Ansari who just put out a show on Netflix and he was doing the press for it um, over the last couple of weeks. And on the show, he tried to get an actor to play his father and he's of Indian uh ethnicity and he couldn't find an Indian actor that he felt really got his dad. And so his dad's a doctor, uh, some sort of medical doctor, and he got him to act as his father on the show. And afterwards, uh, his dad said something about, uh, I think he's on Colbert and his dad said, yeah, I really enjoy doing all the, the acting. It was a lot of fun with you. And I enjoy doing all the interviews. But most of all, I just enjoyed this as an excuse to spend time with you, son. Oh. I was like, oh, that's so nice. And so, Dad, thank you for, yeah, I, I don't know if you care about the podcast, but I appreciate you taking the time to listen to something that's interesting to me or, or that I care about. I'm tearing and, up over here. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. tearing up. We're, this is a rare moment of honest humanity from me, so don't ruin We're being it. being authentic. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to turn that off and go back to making fun of Stormont. So, <laughs> thank you. Anyway, yeah. thank you. And we're going to hug now. Goodbye. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.